This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you very much, and because I have a little bit of extra time in my hands tonight, I want to start the show up by doing a little shout-out to Chris Eklund, who's listening in from uh, Durham, North Carolina. And he wrote me this lovely little note. It says, uh, from 730 miles, or 1,173 kilometers away, I'm a fan of theater of the mind. Not just the radio stories, but the old commercials, too. Reception on the AM radio varies, but that's okay. Reminds me of teenage years growing up in rural Nebraska. The local station signed off at sunset, and our favorite was a rock and roll station out of Oklahoma. Occasionally, I can pick up Zoomer radio in my in the morning, and he says, I have a crush on Jane Brown. <laughs> yeah, but don't we all, you know? Well, thank you so much, Chris, and I hope you're tuned in tonight from Durham, North Carolina. Okay, first out of the gate tonight, a visit with an actor who possessed one of the most recognizable voices in the world, and that, of course, would be Orson Welles. In a few moments, uh, we're going to hear him as he stars in an old radio program entitled The Black Museum. More about that in a moment, but first, let's take a look at this man's incredible career. Orson Welles was an American actor, director, writer, and producer who's remembered for his innovative work in radio, theater, and film. In fact, He's considered one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. While in his 20s, Wells directed a number of high-profile stage productions for the Federal Theater Project, including an adaptation of Macbeth with an entirely African-American cast and the political musical The Cradle Will Rock. In 1937, he and John Houseman founded the Mercury Theater. In 1938... His radio anthology series, The Mercury Theater of the Air, gave Wells the platform to find international fame as the director and narrator of a radio adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds, which caused widespread panic because many listeners throughout thought that an invasion by extraterrestrial beings was, in fact, occurring. Although some contemporary sources say these reports of panic were mostly false and overstated, they rocketed Wells to notoriety. His first film was Citizen Kane in 1941, which has consistently ranked as the greatest film ever made, which he co-wrote, produced, directed, and starred in as Charles Foster Kane. Wells was an outsider to the studio system and struggled for creative control of his projects. He had three marriages, including one with Rita Hayworth, and three children. Known for his baritone voice, Wells performed extensively across theater, radio, and film. He was a lifelong magician, noted for presenting troupe variety shows in the war years. In 2002, he was voted the greatest film director of all time 
in two British Film Institute polls among directors and in critics. And in 2018, he was included in the list of the 50 greatest Hollywood actors of all time by the Daily Telegraph. And tonight, we hear him in the Black Museum, a radio crime drama program produced by Harry Allen Towers in London. It was broadcast in Europe on Radio Luxembourg, a commercial radio station, and was not broadcast by the BBC until 1991. The Black Museum was based on real-life cases from the files of Scotland Yard's Black Museum. Orson Welles, both the host and narrator for the stories of horror and mystery, based on Scotland Yard's collection of murder weapons and various ordinary objects once associated with historical true crime cases. Tonight's episode is entitled... The 22 caliber pistol. This is Orson Welles speaking from London. The Black Museum, the repository of death. Yes, here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide where everyday objects, a skillet, a screwdriver, a photograph, all are touched by murder. Here's a 22 caliber pistol. It's a familiar object. You've seen one or its picture. Never touched one. An elegant little weapon. Blue steel. Mother of pearl inlaid grip. Beautiful in its dainty, snub-nosed wickedness. A lady's weapon, wouldn't you say, Pepper? Looks as if it wouldn't harm a fly. Pretty in its way, Inspector. Pretty and dangerous. There ought to be a law forbidding the manufacture of these toys. Every one of them is capable of death. Well, today, this little blue 22 can be found among the exhibits in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police... We bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Now, the Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. Here we are in the Black Museum, Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. It's an impressive place, the kind of echoing awe which comes from a vaulted ceiling and somber lighting, weird, fantastic, with a harsh, real fantasy that comes with murder. Here lies death, and so neatly. Each object placarded with a small white card labeled with black lettering, name, place, date, disposition of the case. Here's an odd-looking ashtray, soapstone. It's carved rather nicely with a crouching figure of a woman. Something decorative for your living room, but observe closely now the red-brown stain on the rim. Lift up the tray, hold it by the figure of the woman. Yes, it's comfortable in your hand, and suddenly, this is a weapon. Ah, here we are, little blue 22. It's silent now. It was silent, too, during Vivian Davis's cocktail party in London's smart, sophisticated West End. 
Vivian's quite shishy apartment. It was not destined to be silent, though. Not very long. It's a nice place, Vivian's apartment, if you go for ultra-modern glass and metal combinations. Nice people, too. Well, nice-looking, anyway. Young men are quite, quite impeccable. The young ladies are lovely, lush, well aware of the well-put-together attractiveness. Oh, yes, these are the chic young people. <laughs> Mary, darling, have you been watching Vivian and Donald? Uh, what else, sweet? They are a dagger points, aren't they? Well, frankly, Mary, if Viv has one more martini, she'll kill Donald with a look. An alcoholic look, at any rate. Why all the fuss and bother? If Donald wants to play, she ought to let him. I know at least three males were perfectly willing to give Viv a time, really. Mm -hmm. Including yourself, Larry, my sweet? No, darling, I'm the fourth. But then why bother? A trifle strange, isn't it? The ultra-sophisticated, the over-civilized, and yet, you know, beneath the polish, the same old jealousy that you can find in savages. Oh, yes, simple jealousy. For instance, at this moment, Vivian herself is approaching the chrome and plastic bar where Donald is mixing a drink. Donald, haven't you had enough? You're quite tight, you know. Am I, really? I asked you, Donald, haven't you had enough? I don't believe I have. Uh, will you have one, Doc? I've had enough, let me tell you. Uh, this is my party. You might be polite enough to pay some attention to me and a little less to that strawberry blonde. Ah, she's quite attractive in a leggy sort of way. Oh, yes, quite elemental beneath the polished surface. An interesting situation. It continues, of course, as long as the party lasts. It continues, as a matter of fact, well past the end of the party, even to the moment when May and Larry are making their farewells, the last of the guests to go. Oh, it was simply marvellous, Viv, darling. Just delightful. I always adore your parties, Viv. The liquor flows like water. Oh, thank you both for coming. My little parties wouldn't be the same without you. Isn't that so, Donald? Huh? Yes, uh, yes, of course. Coming, Donald, though, son? Well, I don't exactly oh, know. Oh, Mary, please. What? Oh, put my foot in it, didn't I? I'm sorry, old man. Au revoir, Viv. Let the martinis run again sometime soon. Bye, darling. Ring me, won't you? Oh, soon, darling. Quite soon. <laughs> Donald's for it now. Did you see the look in her eyes? Come along, dear. Don't be catty. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> the party's over now. Silence descends on the carpeted hallway. For a moment or two. And then, through the muffling walls... You stupid little, silly little beast on that woman. Oh, stop it, Viv. I'm not interested in her. I've Don't told you make me look like a perfect idiot. Man versus woman. A jealous woman. Where does it go? Isn't it obvious? Of course. Somebody's bound to be hurt. <laughs> Inspector Summers and Detective Pepper arrive quickly from the yard. This seems to be the weapon, Inspector. A twenty-two, Blue steel, mother-of-pearl grip. A lady's weapon, wouldn't you say, Pepper? Looks as if it wouldn't harm a fly. Pretty in its way, Inspector. Pretty and dangerous. There ought to be a law forbidding the manufacture of these toys. Every one of them is capable of death. Funny. What is? The body, out here, on the landing. Yes, well, we'll find the reason for that shortly. Not much blood. 
Twenty tools don't make much of a hole. Uh, stay here, Pepper. I want the pathologist to see the body before it goes to the morgue. You know the procedure. I'll be inside with the uh, prime and only suspect. Yes, sir. I understand. <laughs> All right. Tell me how it happened. Don't you dare to talk to me like that. Take hold of yourself, Miss Davis. I need the answers to a few questions. I'll answer that. Don't you dare. That's my telephone. Yes? Oh, this is Inspector Summers of Scotland Yard. I see. I'm sorry, Lady Munsey. You can't speak to your daughter just now. Yes, she'll be coming down to the yard. You can come there if you wish. Goodbye. Now will you leave me alone? You know who my mother is. Which do you prefer, to answer my questions here or to come down to the yard? I refuse to answer anything. That won't look well in the report, miss. Oh, get out of here. Get out. Take no. hold of yourself, Miss Davis. I told you and told you. Donald and I were arguing. I suppose I grabbed the gun from under the pillow where I keep it. He tried to take it away from me. And next I knew there was a shot and he was mumbling something about the doctor. And then, then he was dead. No, oh, now leave me alone. Leave me alone. Inspector Summers felt that further questioning was indicated. The location he chose was his own office at the yard. Where did you get the gun, Miss Davis? My husband gave it to me several years ago. Are you married? I was. I'm divorced. Inspector Summers thought of many questions. Where did you struggle over the gun? In the bedroom. I see. Why do you use linoleum for a floor covering in the bedroom? Oh, because it's easy to keep clean and because it's chic and because... Oh, what has that to do with Donald? I'm asking the questions, Miss Davis. Oh, yes, there were many, many questions. How long have you lived at that address? How long did you know Donald Martin? Have you ever bought any ammunition for that gun? What were you quarreling about? It went on and on. And finally... Very well, Miss Davis. We shan't hold you. But don't leave London. And uh, your mother is waiting for you. You'd better go home with her. We are sealing your apartment. <laughs> An inconvenient matter, violent death from a gunshot wound. Apartments are sealed, people investigate. One's whole life is turned inside out. And then there are the experts. The scientific facts contradict some of Miss Davis's statements, Inspector. They do? For instance? There's no evidence of any scorching of the clothing around the bullet hole. From that fact and the spread of the smoke stain, I deduce that the gun was held from three to six inches from Martin's chest. As the blood ran down the chest, he must have been standing at the time. It would be practically impossible for him to hold the weapon himself in that position. Could he have clutched the barrel, say, in an attempt to take it away from Miss Davis? In that case, his fingers would be singed, or at least blackened. They're not. I do not believe that the man was touching the weapon at all when it was fired. An embarrassing conclusion, to say the least. There were other things. I've checked Martin's shoes at the morgue, Inspector. Well... 
If they struggled in that bedroom, on that polished linoleum floor, his shoes would have had to scratch the floor. They're leather-soled, and they have metal taps on the tips. Very good. Another discrepancy. Now, uh, Pepper, I think we'd better have a bit of a talk with the neighbors. Are you certain of that, Mrs. Merritt? I am positive. It's not the first time they yelled at each other, those two. And the walls are thin. Do you have it down, Pepper? Yes, sir. They had a quarrel about two weeks ago. He left. She leaned out of the window, only half-dressed, and shouted at him, Laugh, baby, laugh for the last time. And then she fired a gun at him. Thank you. Now then, Mrs. Merritt, before the shot last night, uh, did you catch any of the words they said? Yes. Oh, no, sir. But, well, her bedroom is next to mine. And I heard her say, as clear as day, and at the top of her lungs, I will kill you. Thank you, Mrs. Merritt. Anything else? No, sir. Very well. Uh, let's go, Pepper. All right, Pepper. I think we have the makings of a case. Pick her up. We'll book her for willful murder. And today, a little blue 22, which was to play such an important part in the case, can be seen among the other exhibits in the Black Museum. And now we continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. As the inspector said, they felt they had a case. The evidence was piling up. Vivian Davis was arrested. Her defense counsel was a distinguished member of the bar. The prosecutor assigned was no less brilliant... But some of the conversation about the case was, was, well, a lot less brilliant. Why, if Larry and I had stayed, we might have seen the whole thing. Darling, those letters. Imagine leaving letters like that lying in your bureau drawer where anyone might find them. And do you suppose the prosecution will use them for evidence? <laughs> this is one trial I simply shall not miss. Let me say here and now, if May owns a gun, I'm walking out. And at once... But Viv always was unstable, you know. That's the kind who'll pull a gun on you when you least expect it. Not for me, old man. Not for me. I always said she was no better than you'd think. Wild parties at all hours, firing guns around, drinking. Oh, I dare say the woman wasn't happy. But then who is? Now I ask you, who is? Poor Viv. I understand the food in prison is all starches. Seen the headlines? This is a juicy one, what? I'm to be a witness? You don't say. Really, now? You don't say. They tried the case in public gossip long before it came to proper trial. And when the proper trial began, the courtroom was crowded naturally with bright young women and polished young men, the familiars of the defendant. This, however, failed to ruffle the solemnity of a British court. I shall permit no demonstrations. At the least lapse from proper decorum, I shall have the courtroom cleared. And that settled that. The trial proceeded. 
Vivian Davis in simple black sat in the dock between the two wardresses assigned to guard her. On the witness stand, the pathologist repeated his evidence and his conclusions for the prosecution. There was no cross-examination. With Inspector Summers, it was another matter. Inspector, you heard the prison doctor testify that when Miss Davis was admitted to the prison after her arrest, he found bruises on her arms and on one thigh. Yes, sir. And that such bruises might have been sustained in a struggle. Yes, sir. Very well. Now then, in your experience, have you found that when one person handles a gun, that person's fingerprints are usually found on the weapon? That has been my experience. However, if two parties struggled for possession of a certain weapon, would there be fingerprints? In most cases, no, sir. They tend to smudge or eliminate each other's prints. This weapon, which you've identified and which has been entered in evidence as Exhibit A, did you find this weapon at the scene of the alleged crime? I did. Did you examine it carefully? I did. Did you have it tested for fingerprints? I did. Did you find any? Yes, sir. How many sets? Only one set of prints were on that gun. Whose were they, Inspector? Now tell the jury, please, whose fingerprints were on that gun? Only my own. One more point, Inspector. You stated that you found a bullet in the wall of the bedroom. Correct? Yes, sir. Have you any reason to believe this bullet was fired on the night of the alleged crime? It could have been fired at any time, I suppose. Thank you, Inspector. That's all. Mrs. Merritt, the eager next-door neighbor, had her proverbial day in court. Yes, sir. Just as I told the inspector, she screamed at him, hanging out of the window only half-dressed, and then she fired a shot at him. Counsel for the defense spent little time in the cross-examination of Mrs. Merritt. Madam, did you actually see Miss Davis fire a pistol or gun of some sort at the deceased? I heard the shot after she yelled at him. You said she was only half-dressed at the time. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Then you must have seen her. Well, I took one look, and after that I only listened. Why? Why, Mrs. Merritt? When a woman is in her condition, no other woman cares to watch her. I see. This is your opinion. It certainly is. Your Lordship, I respectfully request that the answers to the last two questions be stricken from the record as constituting an opinion and not evidence. Further, on the grounds that opinions are not warranted, as the witness is not qualified as an expert. Well... The uh, clerk will strike the last two answers from the record, and the jury is instructed to ignore the testimony. Uh, proceed. No further questions. Thank you, Mrs. Merritt. Back and forth, the battle raged, a battle for a woman's life. A case for the Crown was ably presented... The defense, by cross-examination, by objections in the record, sought to upset testimony to establish points which could be played upon later, the climax of the trial, when Vivian Davis herself took the stand in her own defense. Now, Miss Davis, you understand the seriousness of this situation? Of course. I refer to the testimony that you once fired a gun at Donald Martin from your bedroom window. Is this true? No, it's not true. What did happen that evening? He'd come to see me. He'd asked me for money to pay a gambling debt. And I refused. We quarreled. And he left. I was furious and I called to him from my window. Then I went back into the room and fired one shot to make him think I'd killed myself. What happened then? Oh, Donald. Mr. Martin came rushing back and we... We were friends again. 
Miss Davis, have you ever pointed a weapon at Mr. Martin? No, never. Have you wanted to? No, never. Did you shoot him the night he died? No! Have you any recollection of his having spoken to you between the time he was shot and the moment he died? I'll never forget it as long as I live. What did he say? He said, I wish the doctor would hurry. I, I want to tell him that this was an accident. It's not your fault. He said it over and over. And then he was... Dead. Thank you, Miss Davis. You're a witness. Pull yourself together, Miss Davis. Yes, yes, sir. Very well. I submit, Miss Davis, that the truth of your first public quarrel is, as it was stated by your previous witness, that you did fire out of your window at Mr. Martin. Oh, no, never. I fired in the room. I wanted to frighten him. Miss Davis... Is this your pistol? Yes. Is this the weapon which killed Mr. Martin? Yes. And on the night this gun, your gun, killed Mr. Martin, you had a quarrel, a second quarrel. Yes. You were, to put it simply, jealous of his behavior with other women. Oh, I was so jealous, I threatened to kill myself. You threatened to kill yourself? Yes. Then why did you shout, I will kill you? No, 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 I never said that. What did you say, Miss Davis? I, I never said I'll shoot myself. The other, I never said. Why should I? I was jealous, but that was because I loved him. Oh, you've got to believe me. I loved him. I did. I did. There was more, much more, over and over. But they never managed to shake her on the essential points. I never pointed a gun at Donald in my life. And, of course... I never said I'd kill him. I said I'd kill myself. At long last, with Vivian Davis on the verge of collapse, the prosecutor let her go. Shortly thereafter, the defense rested. Summations were brief. For the prosecution? This woman is guilty of the crime with which she is charged. There is no doubt in our minds, nor should there be any in yours, that she held the pistol and fired the shot. For the defense? It is clear that no woman kills the man she loves, despite the violence of their causes. This was an accident. It is clear that it was an accident. The presiding justice was clear and concise in his charge to the jury. Gentlemen of the jury, in conclusion... Uh, let me advise you, there are three possible verdicts you may return under the present indictment. Guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter, or not guilty of any offense. I commend the accused to your most painstaking deliberations. The jury filed out. They stayed out for two long, weary hours. There was chatter in the courtroom. Always is. But even the gossip was subdued. Everybody waited. Waited. Well, it seems perfectly incredible. A murder trial, and I've been in on it since the beginning. Well, I do hope the judge wasn't as much against her as he seemed to be. It was really too exciting for words. I've had more dinner invitations because I know Viv. Oh, well, after all, the poor girl might be hanged, you know. Oh, Grisly thought. Well, 
for my part, even if she gets up, there'll be one advantage. She'll never be my neighbor again, and that will be an improvement, I'd say. And at long last, the waiting was over. The prisoner arose in the dock, the judge's request. The foreman of the jury faced the prisoner in the court. The age-old formula was intoned by the clerk. Members of the jury, have you agreed upon a verdict? We have. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of murder? Not guilty. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of manslaughter? Not guilty. Yet, despite that verdict, the little blue 22 can be seen today among the exhibits in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. person is Orson Welles. Yes, they let Vivian Davis go free. In many minds, the question was, and still is, did Vivian Davis get away with murder? Frankly, I don't believe anyone gets away with murder. Murder stays with a killer, twisting mind and heart and soul, even in the unsuspected and therefore unsolved cases. Where Vivian Davis was concerned, perhaps the real crime was insecurity and the kind of violent jealousy that grows from fear. I don't know. That's for the psychologists, not for you and I to decide. Meanwhile, the little blue 22 remains in its customary place in Scotland Yard, in the Black Museum. And now, until we meet again next time, in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obediently yours. Museum starring Orson Welles is presented by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Radio Attractions. The program is written by Ara Marion with original music composed and conducted by Sidney Torch. Produced by Harry Allen Towers.
Stay tuned for Father Knows Best, next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Robert Young and Jane Wyatt to star in Father Knows Best, a show that first aired in 1950. My fair, is Maxwell House really the only coffee in the world? Well, your father says so, and your father knows best. It's Father Knows Best, transcribed in Hollywood, starring Robert Young as father. A half-hour visit with your neighbors, the Andersons. Brought to you by America's favorite coffee, Maxwell House. The coffee that's always good to the last drop. Since the dark beginnings of time, superstition has played a dismal part in the fumbling progress of man. We, however, live in an enlightened age, and, thank goodness, we've thrown off the yoke of ignorant superstition. Well, I mean, knocking on wood isn't really a superstition. You do it just because... Well, anyway, in Springfield, in the white frame house on Maple Street, we find Jim Anderson packing for a trip to Chicago. And for a change, everything is peaceful and quiet, like this. Jim, it certainly won't hurt to take them along. Margaret, I'm only going to be gone three days. How many pairs of socks do you think I can wear? Well, you never can tell, dear, and it's best to be on the safe side. Twelve pairs of socks. Anybody think I was going to Alaska for the entire winter? Jim, they weigh practically nothing, and I certainly All think... right, all right, put them in. I'll have enough socks for everybody at the whole convention. Dad! We're upstairs, bud. Jim, you don't need all those shirts. What do you mean, all those shirts? I'm only taking six. But you'll only be away three days. You said so yourself. <laughs> but, honey, I've got to look neat. All the big shots from the home office will be there. I think three shirts are quite enough. You just have to be a little careful, that's all. Okay, three shirts. Fine thing, a man can't even pack the bag away he wants to. Say, Dad, can I talk to you for a minute? About what? Well, handkerchiefs. Mustn't forget handkerchiefs. I've already put them in, dear. Oh, thank you. Well, what is it, bud? Uh, could I have three dollars? No. What, uh, happened to that bottle opener I had in the top drawer? Jim, if it's going to be that kind of convention... It isn't, Margaret, but I just thought... Well, <clears throat> never mind. Dad. But I said no. I know, Dad, but this is an emergency. What kind of an emergency? The worst kind. I've never known you to have any other. Why do you need three dollars? Well, it's for the baseball team. I need another bat. You mean you've broken the old one already? No, but... Well, I... I think I've used up all the hits. You what? I'm in an awful slump, Dad. I haven't had a hit in two weeks. And if I can just buy a bat with some hits in it... That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> You've got a perfectly good bat. Why waste $3 on another one? But, Dad, I've got to do something to change my luck. Luck. Superstitious twaddle. If you can't get a hit with the old bat, you won't get one with the new one either. But, Dad... Particularly if I have to pay for it. Well, I guess I'm all packed. You haven't forgotten anything, have you, dear? I don't think so. But how about taking the bag downstairs like a good fellow? Okay. But look, Dad, we're playing a very important game this Mother, afternoon. Mother. And... Just a moment, bud. What is it, Kathy? 
I don't care what she says, you can't go. Mother, Betty says I can't go to the club with her this afternoon. And you said I could. I said I'd ask her, dear. Mother, it's bad enough going out with a boy I don't even know. But if I have to drag her along... They're going to play tennis, and I want to watch. Kathy, if Betty says you can't go, then you can't go. Now stop arguing. You love her more than you love me. <laughs> that's why you're always sticking up for her. I'm not sticking up for anybody. You can watch Bud play baseball. No! <laughs> what? Holy cow, Dad. You don't know what you're doing. Oh, I don't, huh? She's worse than a black cat. <laughs> she's, she's worse than an umpire. Now, listen, Bud, there's no reason... But, Dad, you've never heard her. She sounds like a fire siren. She gets both teams rattled. <laughs> hmm. Bunch of sand lotters. <laughs> it's all right, Kathy. You can stay home with me this afternoon. But I want to do something. We'll find something to do. How about the bag, Bud? Okay. Not having enough trouble. They want me to take her along. Father. What is it, Betty? Is Mr. Davis's nephew tall and dark? How do I know? I've never even seen him. What difference does it make anyway? Well, Janie Liggett told my fortune yesterday, and the card said to be careful of a tall, dark man. And if he's tall and dark... Betty, if he's eight feet tall and has hair made of licorice, you're still going out with him. He's only going to be in town this weekend And I gave Ed Davis my word But father Most idiotic thing I've ever heard in my life Just because Janie Liggett hasn't got a brain in her head It wasn't Janie's idea, father She has a fortune-telling set and it's wonderful It costs four dollars Oh, pardon me I thought it was one of the cheap two-dollar sets <laughs> Jim, I know you're going to say it's silly, but I did have a dream about a wedding last night. Margaret, not you, too. Well, you remember my grandmother, Williams. The Hottentot kid. <laughs> Jim, Grandmother Williams was a very sweet woman. And she said when you dream of a wedding, it means trouble. Well, that depends on who's getting married. Jim. <laughs> you certainly don't believe in that poppycock, do you? Well... No, but if Betty's going to feel uneasy... Feel uneasy about what? Since when is a dream something to be afraid of? I'm not afraid of dreams, Daddy. Nine years old, and she's the only intelligent one in the whole house. <laughs> You're a very sensible little girl, Kathy. I'm not afraid of anything. Because I've got a lucky penny and a rabbit's foot and a horseshoe and... Margaret, what's gotten into this family, anyway? These aren't the Middle Ages. This is the 20th century. We're supposed to be intelligent human beings. Jim, it's not that we believe in these things. Then what does it mean? All this twaddle about dreams and fortune tellers and bats with hits in them? You sound like a bunch of Stone Age simpletons. Why, Father! Now, just a moment, Jim Anderson. You have just as many silly little superstitions as anyone else. I certainly do not. You most certainly do. Kathy... Yes, Daddy? Go downstairs and help Bud. What's he doing? How do I know what he's doing? Go downstairs and find out. And help him. <laughs> Gee whiz. Now, see here, Margaret. Yes? In my time, I've walked under hundreds of ladders, broken thousands of mirrors, ignored millions of black cats, and if you can call that being superstitious... I'll bet that's Charlie. Who? Charlie Davis, and Father, if he's tall and dark... Betty, 
But, Father, Janie said... I don't care what Janie said. You are going out with Charlie Davis. Oh, Pooh. Betty, it's for you. She'll be right down, bud. Go ahead, Betty. If this is the 20th century, why do I have to be treated like somebody's slave? I don't know what's gotten into that girl. What are you looking for, dear? My gray hat was right up here on the shelf. It's downstairs in the hall closet. Yeah, I mean my old gray hat, the one I always wear to conventions. Jim, it was all worn out. It was dirty and the ribbon was faded. Margaret, what did you do with my hat? Uh, well, I gave it to Mr. Adams. Mr. You mean the junk man? Yes, dear. You gave my hat to the junk man? Jim, you have a brand new hat. Margaret, how could you do a thing like that to me? That was my luck. I mean, uh, how could you? But you said... I've worn that hat to conventions for 15 years. You know I never go to a convention without it. What were you thinking of? Father, he is tall, and he's got the blackest hair you ever saw. I won't go with him, and you can't make me. Oh, I can't, can't I? Betty Anderson, you'll go out with that boy, or you'll never go out again. But, Father... I'm having enough trouble. Give a man's hat away at a time like this. Betty, after all, your father knows best, and if he thinks... All right, I'll go. But if anything happens to me, you'll have no one to blame but yourself. Betty, your father's going away. Aren't you going to say goodbye? Sure. Goodbye. And I hope you have a very nice time. <laughs> Most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. A perfectly good hat sitting up on a shelf, not hurting a soul. Jim, you said you weren't superstitious. Superstitious? What has superstition got to do with it? I like that hat. It was the best hat I've ever had. But it was all worn out. It was a perfect hat for going to conventions, and you know it. But... Jim... You want me, Dad? Get Mr. Adams on the phone. Who? Mr. Adams. The junk man? <laughs> Tell him I want my gray hat back. It's in the closet, Dad. My old gray hat. Tell him I'll give him $5 for it. For that hat? Bud. <laughs> okay, Dad. Jim, you're being very foolish about this whole thing. Oh, I am, am I? Just because I have a lucky... Uh, just because I happen to like a certain hat, I'm being foolish. That's fine. Jim, your train leaves in less than an hour. Well, let it leave. I'll take a plane. I'll walk. But until Mr. Adams comes back with my hat, Daddy! I'm not going to... What is it, Kathy? Mr. Davis is here. Oh, no. What does he want? <laughs> I'll be right down, Ed. Take your time, Jim. No hurry. Jim, please don't make a fuss in front of Ed. Of course not. You know I've got better sense than that. I do? <laughs> well, I guess I've got everything except my hat. I don't understand, Jim, after that long speech you made about dreams and fortune tellers. Margaret, my hat has nothing to do with dreams and fortune tellers. is isn't a question of superstition or anything like that. I merely want my hat. And in the future, will you please leave my things alone? Yes, dear. I'm not asking for anything unusual. Just don't give my hats to the junk man. All right, dear. Jim, I'm sorry to barge in at a time like this. I know you must be kind of busy. Well, it's all right. How are you, Ed? Fine, Margaret, just fine. Jim, I have some property in Chicago, and I wonder if you'll do me a big favor while you're there. Sure, Ed, I'll be glad to. Dad, Mr. Adams wasn't there. That's impossible. He must be there. Okay, but Mrs. Adams said he wasn't. She's going to see if she can find him. Margaret, now do you see what you've done? Jim, you said... I know what I said, but good grief. Anything wrong, Jim? Everything's wrong. We've had nothing but trouble all day. My good hat's gone, the junk man's gone. 
Betty didn't even want to go out with your nephew just because he's tall and dark. You mean Charlie? Have you ever heard anything so ridiculous? Oh, I don't understand. Oh, Janie Liggett has some kind of an idiotic set that tells fortunes, and she told Betty... Oh, I understand that part, all right. Used to be quite a hand with a Ouija board. But I don't understand about Charlie. Oh, there's nothing to worry about, Ed. She went with him, even though he is tall and dark. But he isn't. Charlie's short, and he has red hair. Oh, no! Double, double, toil and trouble, fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. It's a far cry from the witches of Macbeth to the Andersons of Springfield, but not as far as you might think. An hour has passed, and the situation has altered only slightly. Bud is out playing baseball. Kathy is out playing, well, whatever it is that nine-year-old girls play. But in the white frame house on Maple Street, the air is charged with nervous tension. Not a word has been heard from Betty, and the Andersons and Ed Davis can do nothing but wait. Like this. Don't like this. Don't like it at all. Look, Ed, I don't care what you do, but do something. Well, let's try this. Hmm, let me see now. Jim, I don't understand how you can sit there at a time like this and play canasta. (laughs) Well, what do you want me to do? Margaret, we haven't left a stone unturned. We've called all her friends, the club, all the authorities, and they've promised to let us know the second either one of them turns up. There must be someone else we can call. Like who? I'm not even sure calling the police was such a good idea. Jim, you've got to understand my position. After all, Charlie's my nephew, and we don't know where he is, the idiot. We don't know where Betty is, or how the boy with the dark hair got into it. It's very confusing. Whose turn is it? Well, the whole thing is certainly nothing to worry about. Just because Janie Leggett is a superstitious little twerp. Jim, after all the fuss you made about your hat, how can you call anyone superstitious? My hat has nothing to do with it. And I didn't make a fuss. Then why did you miss your train? Because I decided to fly. I wanted to find out what happened to Betty. That's all. Nothing complicated about it. And it has nothing to do with superstition. I guarantee that when Betty shows up, there'll be a perfectly logical explanation of the whole thing. Well, I hope you're right. Of course I'm right. Go ahead, Ed. It's your turn. You haven't put down a card. Oh. Well, uh, just a minute. It's certainly taking long enough. I have a right to think about it, don't I? Just don't rush me. You know, when I was a boy, we lived in an old house on the north side, and the place was simply crawling with ghosts. Well, one day... Wait a minute, Ed. Don't tell me you believe in ghosts. Why not? Well, it's ridiculous. Everybody knows there's no such thing. Oh, they do, do they? Well, let me tell you, Jim, there wasn't a night went by... Betty? It's me, Mom. I'm sorry, Ed. What are you doing home, bud? Thought you were going to play baseball. Well, I started to play, but... Gosh, Dad, I told you that bat wasn't any good. Bud, what on earth happened to your eye? You gods, another shiner. Bud, have you been fighting again? I got hit with a baseball. That's great. You know, if this keeps up, you're going to have that eye worn out. 
I couldn't help it, Dad. I asked you to let me buy another bat. You were hit with a ball. What does a bat have to do with it? Well, they took me out for a pinch hitter. And while I was sitting on the bench, I got hit in the eye. There, you see. That's what you get for being superstitious. Why aren't you on the train? <laughs> Who said anything about a train? Jim, Bud is only doing the things you taught him. I taught him? When did I teach him anything about a bat with no hits in it? Well, it amounts to the same thing. Just because you're concerned over a silly old hat. I'm not concerned about my hat. The hat has nothing to do with it. And, Margaret, will you please stop changing the subject? Oh, no, not again. What was that? The glazier's delight. Kathy! Bud, tell Kathy to come in here, please. Okay. Tells me I can't get a new bat and then blames the whole thing on me. As I was saying, Jim, we had a rocking chair in our living room. And every night it went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, what does that prove? Well, it certainly wasn't moving all by itself. <laughs> you know, Ed, you certainly have some very peculiar ideas. I don't see anything peculiar about them at all. And if you weren't so doggone stubborn, stubborn, me, you're the one who's being stubborn. I'll show you a dozen books that prove there's no such thing as a ghost. And I'll show you two dozen books that prove there are. Jim, my grandmother Williams said that when she was a girl... Now, there's a great authority for you. A dame who spent half her life running around with Hottentots. She was a very sweet woman, and you have no right to make fun of her. I'm not making fun of her. I'm merely trying to tell you that superstition is silly. Where did you get that hat? What? Nothing. I was just thinking. Hmm. Come on, will ya? Well, stop pulling me. Why do you always have to pull me? <laughs> Daddy, what did you do out there? I couldn't help it, Daddy. I was trying to make everybody lucky. She heaved a horseshoe through the garage window. <laughs> oh, fine. We just had it fixed. But, Daddy, I was worried about Betty. And they told me if I threw it over my right shoulder... Your left shoulder, Dopey. Oh, well, no wonder. Kathy, do you see what you've done? She was just trying to be helpful, dear. Sure, and I'm going to be set back another $4.20 for a window. But, Daddy, they said it was lucky. Who said it was lucky? The man who fixed the window. <laughs> Look, Kathy, let's examine this thing calmly and with simple logic. Why is a horseshoe lucky? Well... Everybody says it is. Horses have millions of them, and are they lucky? Some of them are. That idiotic rabbit's foot you carry around. Where's the rabbit it used to belong to? Did it bring him any luck? Well, he was lucky while he had it. <laughs> but it didn't keep him from getting shot, did it? He had four feet, four nice, lucky rabbit's feet. He still got shot. He must have looked at the moon over the wrong shoulder. <laughs> now, look, Kathy. Jim. I'll answer it. Dear, if it's Betty, please don't lose your temper. Silliest family I've ever seen. I think we were living in the Middle Ages. Horseshoes and rabbits' feet. Father, how could you do this to me? How could you? You get inside. I'll talk to you later. Officer, we found her at Crandall's drugstore, Mr. Anderson. She was having a soda. Then he wouldn't even let me finish. Oh, well, uh, sorry you were put to all this trouble, officer. I'll see that it doesn't happen again. <laughs> That's okay. We're used to it. Jim, is it Betty? Mother, why did you do this to me? Having me dragged home by the police and everybody looking at me. Darling, we were so worried. Where's Charlie? 
What did you do with that rattle-brained redhead? Did you want the boys? Nobody told me to bring them. You mean there were two of them? Father, why didn't you listen to me? I told you I didn't want to go with Tommy. You said it was Charlie. I didn't say it was Charlie. I said he was tall and dark, and Janie Liggett said I was going to have trouble. But you wouldn't listen. I'm sorry I listened in the first place. Who was the other boy? Tommy. Tommy who? I don't know, but he's a friend of Charlie's, and Charlie was trying to get a date for him. And he knew he was going to be late, so he sent Tommy, and we met him down at Mr. Crandall's. And it's all your fault. What's my fault? You hadn't started that ridiculous thing about Janie Liggett and the tall, dark man. Uh, will you be needing me for anything else? Hmm? Oh, thank you, officer. I think everything's under control now. Well, I wouldn't be so sure. Sounds to me like the whole house is infested with leprechauns. Better leave a bowl of milk out for them tonight. Otherwise, you'll have nothing but trouble. <laughs> thank you, officer. We'll, uh, do just that. Now we've got leprechauns. Betty... What happened to that idiot nephew of mine? Nothing. When the policeman came, he and Tommy didn't know what to do. So, they're having another soda. <sighs> Just wait till I get my hands on that carrot-headed numbskull. Just wait. Oh, it wasn't his fault, Ed. The whole thing was a very unfortunate misunderstanding, that's all. It's more than that. It's a perfect example of what I've been trying to tell you. Do you see what superstition has done to this family? Jim, it's not that important. It is important. We're supposed to be a healthy, normal American family. And what happened to us? We become involved in a bunch of old-world superstitions, and all our lives are affected. Bud gets a black eye, Kathy breaks a window, Betty gets the whole neighborhood upset with her tall, dark stranger. Jim, it's very well to scoff at superstition, but when I was a boy... Ye gods, now what? I tell you, that chair rocked back and forth. Back and forth. <laughs> Mr. Anderson, my friend, my wonderful friend. It's about time you got here. Where's my hat? Jim, you mustn't blame Mr. Adams. I gave him the hat. Mrs. Anderson, look what I brought for you. The biggest box of candy I could find. This is the biggest box of candy in Springfield. Why, Mr. Adams. Go ahead. Take it. Take it. I want you to have it. It's for you. Mr. Adams, all we want is the hat. May I please See, have... I brought a doll for the little girl. Presents for everybody. A baseball bat and perfume. Mr. Adams, I have to go to Chicago. May I please have my hat? Look, Mr. Anderson. Cigars. The biggest box I could find. Mr. Adams. Three for a half. That's expensive. But nothing is too good for my friend. Thank you very much. Now may I have my hat? The hat. That wonderful hat. You know, all my life I've been an unlucky man. A junk man. A, a poor peddler. And then... You gave me that hat, that beautiful hat. I said I'd give you $5. Oh, I couldn't sell the hat. Not that hat. $10. Jim. Mr. Anderson. $15. I wouldn't sell it for a million dollars. Haven't you heard what it did for me? I just won the Irish sweepstakes. <laughs> It doesn't take long for three days to come and go. Just about three days. And that's precisely what's happened in Springfield. Jim Anderson has gone to Chicago and come back again. And now, for the first time in three days, he's at the breakfast table with his family. Like this. 
I guess I made them sit up and take notice. Right in front of everybody, Mr. Craig said they couldn't have placed the Springfield area in more capable hands. Jim, he didn't. He certainly did. And he's only the president of the company, that's all. Boy, you should have seen the eyes pop. Say, Dad, you know how many hits I got yesterday with the bat Mr. Adams gave me? Six. That's fine, bud. How come you had a game yesterday? Well, it wasn't a regular league game. I was just fooling around with Kathy's team. <laughs> he hit three home runs. Oh, it wasn't so much. <laughs> a father? Yes, Betty? I'm going to a formal next Friday, and I saw the most beautiful dress. Again? Betty, your father just got home. But, Mother, Tommy said it was going to be the most exclusive formal of the year. Tommy? You mean the tall, dark one? Uh huh. <laughs> you know, maybe we're going to have trouble with him after all. Jim, let's not get started on that again. It was a very successful convention, wasn't it? It certainly was. I accomplished a great deal. And you did it all without your lucky hat, didn't you? Margaret, I never said it was a lucky hat. I merely said, well, a man's entitled to a few little idiosyncrasies. That's all it was, so let's just forget it. All right, dear. Daddy? Yes, Kathy? Is everything all right now? I mean, you aren't going away on any more trips or anything, are you? No, Kathy, I'm staying right here, and everything's just as fine as it can be. Good. Now, can I please have my rabbit's foot back? again next week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best, starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson, with Roy Bargey and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. Don't forget, membership cards for the Robert Young Good Drivers Club are waiting for you at your local NBC station. Get a man-to-man or dad-to-daughter pledge and sign up today. Be a good driver. Get your membership card in the Robert Young Good Drivers Club today. Now until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's favorite brand of coffee. Always good to the last drop. Father Knows Best was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Ed James. Now stay tuned for Screen Guild Theater, which follows immediately over most of these stations. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Box 13, followed by Fibber McGee and Molly. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.